Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your grace in that you have allowed us to continue serving you even as circumstances have intervened to make that more challenging, more difficult. But Father, we know that we are not the first generation of believers to have faced challenges. We are not the first to be separated. We are not the first to find it difficult to meet or to teach or to fellowship. We're not the first that have felt loneliness or persecution or fear, anxiety. Father, these are common to the experience of all people. And yet, Father, you've told us that you have overcome these things. You've overcome the world. And that by our faith in you, we too have overcome it. Help us to understand, Father, overcoming does not mean that we will somehow escape them. We overcome them in eternity. We overcome them in our new body and in our resurrected life. We overcome them, Father, in the promises of good things to come in the kingdom. And we have overcome them, Father, in that they are no longer a concern. Death is no longer an enemy of ours, and this world is no longer where we place our hope. And at the same time, Father, help us to make the most of these days. Help us, Father, to find opportunity in our circumstance to be a minister to someone else, in our family, in our neighborhood, wherever we may go. And, Father, help us in what we learned today to be more effective in that mission. We ask this in the name of our Son, or your Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, friends, open up to Matthew 22. We're in our verse-by-verse study of Matthew. We're studying through the events that took place on the Tuesday before Christ died while he's teaching in the temple. Tuesday is one of four days that he spends in the temple being the Lamb of God, being tested so that he can show himself to be spotless and without blemish and without sin. His testing, as you know, comes in the form of these trick questions that are being brought to him by the religious leaders who oppose his claims as being Messiah. And so far, in what we've studied in this chapter, Jesus has endured three rounds of these tests, if you will, and each of these rounds have come to him in the form of a trick question, and each time he's put these guys on their heels at the end of the encounter. Now, the one we studied last week on Easter was the moment in which the Sadducees came before Jesus trying to stumble him with that question about resurrection. They contrived that ridiculous scenario based around the Levite marriage scenario where a woman has to marry multiple men over her lifetime. And it was intended to show that resurrection was just not a workable concept, at least not to the Sadducees. And as a result, they thought that Jesus would stumble in trying to address their question. Now he responded by saying that the Pharisees didn't understand scripture and they didn't understand the power of God. And those two reasons are behind probably every misunderstanding of the Bible. Every debate you see, every confused Christian that you encounter, every false teaching that comes into the church has at the core of it these same two problems. People who overestimate their understanding of the Bible and underestimate the power of God. And as a result, they get things wrong. And so Jesus corrects the Pharisees on both counts He shows that God has the power to make a a new life that is fundamentally different than the one we know now, um, a new life in which marriage will no longer exist. And secondly, he showed the Sadducees how their very own scriptures, the books of Moses even, showed the reality of resurrection. 
And as a result, it stunned them, it stunned the crowd. Everyone was amazed at Jesus' teaching. Now, at the same time that Jesus was dressing down the Sadducees, remember the Pharisees are standing by as well. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees are rivals. They have opposite views of many things. And the Sadducees were delighted, I'm sure, at watching their rivals embarrassed by Jesus. You know, the Sadducees do agree that resurrection is true. A literal, historical resurrection is going to happen. And as a result, they were pleased to see the Sadducees put in their place by Jesus, who agreed with their point of view. Now, before we move back into the text, I want you to think about this moment for just uh, another second or two here. I want you to consider the effect of what Jesus just did on both of those two groups, on the Sadducees and on the Pharisees. In that brief moment, Jesus just resolved a long-standing debate between these two groups. These two guys, the, the groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they had been debating whether resurrection was literally true or not for years. This is one of those intractable debates you'll see sometimes among religious people in which both sides are you know, entrenched in their view, neither side's willing to give it all, and it just goes round and round and goes nowhere. Neither side had been able to convince the other. And then in one brief moment, Jesus, not in some supernatural display, mind you, just in using the Bible properly, he completely settles the argument. He cites that yet-to-be-fulfilled covenant that God gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in showing that it had yet to be fulfilled, he makes the point that resurrection has to be true or otherwise God is made to be a liar because he's promised things to those men that they never received, not yet, and they're all dead. The only way they're gonna get them is if they come back to life. And in that way, he puts to rest the argument. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment how those two sides must have felt in the moment when they realized their debate had just ended. The Sadducees were wrong, the Pharisees were right. And you know how the Pharisees felt, right? They felt vindicated, Uh, they were probably smug. Uh, On the other hand, you have the Sadducees, they're probably disoriented, deflated, embarrassed, maybe even angry, right? No one likes to be shown they're wrong. But the funny thing is, the answer was there all along. It was in Genesis. Any of them could have read it. Any of them could have seen it. I mean, Jesus didn't do anything magical. He just said, hey, guys, check this out. And suddenly, the answer is given. Everyone knows it. If either of those two groups, Sadducees or Pharisees, had known their Bible well enough, they could have put this issue to rest. The Sadducees apparently weren't even listening to Scripture because they were set in their view, and I suspect they preferred winning an argument over knowing the truth. And then you have the Pharisees who, although they had the right answer, they believed in resurrection, they couldn't teach the Bible sufficiently to convince the Sadducees that it was true. Now, in my experience, there are a lot of debates within Christianity that kind of go in this same way. You have scholars and pastors or Bible teachers or or just regular people in the church who have studied their Bible that they come together and they begin to argue about one idea or another, some aspect of theology, and those arguments never go anywhere. They just keep going back and forth, both sides being ruled by pride, by their defense of their academic achievements, or over fear that they're somehow gonna look diminished in the eyes of their congregation if they have to retreat on something that they previously taught. And so everyone does the same thing the Sadducees and the Pharisees did. They just dig their heels in, and without truly trying to examine Scripture together so as to arrive at the truth, They just go at each other hoping to win the argument. And then there's the rest of us. 
You know, if you've ever seen one of these moments take place around you, you know how this feels, right? You watch these exchanges, assuming, well, gee, if these experts can't agree on this, I just assume no one can figure it out. This must be a problem that is uh, unsolvable. It's unknowable. We, we, we simply will have to agree to disagree, we always say, which is really just a polite way of saying we're giving up on each other. But as I like to say, just because many people can get the Bible wrong doesn't mean you have to be one of them. That is, just because some smart people miss obvious things doesn't mean that God can't reveal it to anyone else he chooses. And in my experience, that's the issue with these debates. Someone has the truth. It's been rare in my experience that you have uh, reasonably knowledgeable Christians arguing over something in which no one knows the truth. Usually somebody does have the truth. One side will know the answer, but the other side isn't listening, or the one that has the answer is so arrogant about it that they turn off everyone, no one wants to hear what they have to say, which is only proof that your pride can rob you of the ability to see the truth or to help others see it or frankly to even care what it is. And also remember, there are answers in the Bible. Remember what Jesus did in that example from last week. He didn't pull a rabbit out of his hat, he just said, hey, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was all he needed to do to reveal the truth to them, which tells you that it was there waiting all along. And I think the reason we don't settle more disagreements in the church out of scripture is because of pride, because we let pride get the better of us and because ignorance is often the state of the church. If we would just study our Bibles to know the truth rather than to be affirmed in what we already believe, then we would far less likely make fools of ourselves like the Sadducees did and miss the truth. And if we happen to be the one on the right side of some issue and we have the truth, if we would get better at defending it from scripture in a loving and kind way, then we won't make the mistake that the Pharisees apparently made, which was being unable to convince others of the truth. And in general, if you pursue a deeper understanding of the Bible with a teachable heart, in the end you're gonna get to know Jesus a lot better. And here's the one last thing to consider. Sooner or later we get to play the part of the Sadducees. Sooner or later, we're gonna be on the wrong side of something. Nobody's perfect, nobody knows it all, not me, not anyone, and so sooner or later, we're gonna be the one who has come uh, to a point where someone else has the truth that we need, and we're gonna have to admit we're wrong. And when it's your turn to be wrong on some issue in the scripture, I'll encourage you with another of my favorite sayings. I'd rather know the truth than be right. Now, if you can keep that attitude, if that's truly what you think, then you're gonna go a long way in your Bible study. But if you're one of those people that has to be right, well, then you're gonna miss the truth sooner or later. And because you weren't right, you're gonna go to your grave being wrong on that point. And remember, there's a day coming in which we're going to stand before Jesus and we're gonna get to know the truth in all respects. That's not the day you wanna show up discovering that your heart was hard and you've been ignoring the truth as God brought it to you. Because he does eventually bring his children the truth. It is his heart's delight to reveal himself to his children. But he doesn't do it through a lightning bolt. He's not gonna send you an angel in the middle of the night, not usually. What he'll do instead is something very simple. He will just put the truth in your path. He'll put a a podcast or a book or a teacher in your path with the truth. And it's not gonna come at you, you know, with a two by four over the head. It's just gonna be in front of you. You can take it, you can leave it. Now, if your default response to that moment is to dig down into your current position and defend it at all costs, then you're gonna miss it. You're gonna miss the truth. 
A Christian, though, who is open to correction in that way is gonna grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's called a teachable heart, and you have to have it if you wanna grow. So back to Matthew and back to chapter 22. Let's see where we go now in this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. We pick up in verse uh, 34. In verse 34, we go to round four, as I'm calling them, of these debates or these conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. Now, this one's a little different. As we'll see here now, it's not a trick question, not in the way the earlier ones were. It's actually a legitimate question about Scripture. But as usual, it becomes an opportunity for Jesus to expose the ignorance of these men and their lack of understanding of Scripture. Let's go to chapter 22, verse 34, and we read, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? All right, we'll stop there. We have a lawyer now, we're told, who comes from among the Pharisees. Lawyers were part of the Pharisaic uh, community. And they come to Jesus, this guy that does, with a question. And Matthew says it's a test. And Mark, if you were to go to Mark's gospel, Mark describes this man as a scribe, but that's the same thing. A scribe, a lawyer, same thing. Uh, Scribes and lawyers were aligned with Pharisees uh, because it was their job to help in the teaching of the law to the nation of Israel and into uh, the enforcing of the rules of the law. That was what Pharisees were responsible for, and the scribes and the lawyers were part of that team. They specialized in settling disputes over the law, much like lawyers do today. And they resolved conflicts that might arise between different laws because you could end up in a situation in which some, somebody's found two different laws that uh, are essentially in conflict in the moment, asking for opposite things, and a lawyer would step in and resolve that. So for a scribe or a lawyer, a question like the one he's posing now to Jesus is a very legitimate, a very meaningful Uh, question. It's very important to the job because if there was a conflict between two laws, for example, they'd have to answer the question, which one prevails? Which one is the important one? Which one has priority? And as the rabbis sat around and thought over which laws should be greater than which other laws, you eventually arrive at the ultimate question. What's the greatest law? Which one is more important than any other law in all of what the Lord commanded? Israel. And after the lawyer has watched Jesus now address this longstanding debate over resurrection and settle it so easily, well, the lawyer must think to himself, well, gee, this guy might be able to settle this other issue for us, which is, what's the greatest commandment? So he asks them. And this man asked Jesus to resolve it. Matthew says, though, it was a test, which is to say, although it's not a trick question, it's still an opportunity to trip up Jesus. And here's how that would work. It's not coming in the form of some contrived situation. Rather, it's a test of the depths of Jesus' understanding of Scripture. I mean, if you think about it for a moment, if I ask you, what's the most important commandment in all of the Bible, you'd pause because you'd be worried that if you listed something that was too trivial, you would look foolish. You'd want to, to seem wise and considered in your response. Someone who would need to know the Bible really from front to back in order to be able to answer that question and get it right. So in that respect, it's an opportunity to test whether Jesus truly understands things the way he claims to. And whatever answer he gives, I'm sure they're prepared to challenge it in some way. So anyway, because it's a legitimate question, Jesus doesn't mind answering it. He he takes it straight on. He answers, quoting here uh, from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 
four. I'm gonna go to the text of Matthew chapter 22 and read Jesus' answer. Uh, You can look at it starting in verse 37. Verse 37, Jesus says, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So Jesus gives them a a straight up answer and he answers from something called the Jewish Shema. Uh, The Jewish Shema is a recitation that Orthodox Jews are required to make twice a day taken from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 which is the part that Jesus quoted. Now Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, it means the second law. Deuteronomy means second law and it's the final book of the five books of the Torah. In the Deuteronomy, or in Deuteronomy, the Lord repeats the law to a new generation of Israel uh, on the eve of their entry into the promised land. Now, if you remember the story of Israel in the desert wanderings, the first generation of Israel that left Egypt and went into the desert received the law as written in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. But they soon rebelled against the Lord and disobeyed the law and tested him 10 times. As a result of their disobedience, the Lord judged that generation by declaring that they would not receive the promised land but rather would wander in the desert for 40 years until they all died. Well, the book of Numbers is the book that chronicles those 40 years of wandering. Then, after the 40 years, that generation is gone and now what's left are the sons and daughters of those that originally left Egypt and now it's time for God to let that new generation enter into the land and that's where the book of Deuteronomy comes in. The book of Deuteronomy follows the book of Numbers and tells the story of that new generation receiving the law a second time now and being permitted to enter in under Joshua. So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And just like the first time it was given back in Exodus, God begins the giving of the law with the Ten Commandments again in chapter six of Deuteronomy. But before he does that, He introduces the law with some new language that was not there the first time. Let me read from Deuteronomy 6, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. The Lord says, Now this is the commandment, the the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you, shall, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now from there, the book of Deuteronomy goes into the law, starting with the Ten Commandments. But did you notice, before he does that, he commands the nation of Israel that their highest duty to God is that they would love God with all they have. And it's because the Lord introduced his commandments with this command in Deuteronomy 6, it led the Pharisees to determine that this must be the greatest commandment. If God gives this commandment before any others, then this must be what's greatest. They call it the Shema. They told Jews to recite it twice daily so they would never forget it, and it became ingrained in Jewish culture. Now, as Jesus is asked to rule on whether that was the correct view or not, he affirms it. 
He says, you're right. That is the greatest commandment of the law. Above all else, we are to love God with our heart, our soul, our might or strength. And then in Mark's gospel, we see added one more term, and our mind. So we often say our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said this is the greatest and foremost commandment in the law. And the Greek word for greatest there is megas. It just means nothing is greater and nothing overshadows this command. And it is the foremost command in that nothing comes before it. So you notice in the way Jesus describes, he mentions these aspects of our being as the law itself does, starting with our heart. Let me just examine these each with you for just a brief moment. What does it mean to love God with all your heart? Well, heart here refers to our affections, things we get attached to in this world, things we have uh, desires for. God is to be the thing we desire or care about or have an affection for beyond anything else in our life, before any hobby, before your job, even before your spouse or your children. There should be nothing that takes priority in your affections over your affection for God and your pursuit of God. Secondly, we love him with our mind, all our mind, and that means, of course, in our thinking, in our understanding, and that's fundamentally a process of seeking the truth of God in his word. And we do that in place of the world's lies, which are coming at us from every direction, so one of the best ways to do that is study your Bible. Commit scripture to memory. Allow God to, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1, renew you, renew your mind in an understanding of things that only he can give you. And whenever the time of, might come when the truth of God's word comes into conflict with what the world tells you, well, there's no question where you go. You go with what God says in his word. That's what it means to love him with all your mind. Thirdly, we love him with our soul, all our soul. And soul is a, a description of our devotion of worship. So you cannot share your worship of God with anything else. You can't have some pantheon of gods or spiritual power that you give uh, some credit to, that you put time into worshiping or give credence to. So things like, I don't know, horoscopes, uh, mother nature, uh, some mystical power that you believe exists in the world and is somehow separate from God. If you hold those two views together, you haven't given God all of your soul, you haven't given him all of your worship. And then finally, we love him with all our strength. And strength in this context refers to the physical struggles that we have in our own walk against our own sin nature and against the temptations that the enemy may bring. Because we all know following the Lord in a fallen world is not easy. It's not without work. And the enemy is trying to make it as hard as he can. So we truly love God when we struggle against our sin, when we give our strength to the effort to walk according to his statutes and remaining determined to do so even in the face of persecution or whatever might come our way. That is giving your strength to your love of God. So Jesus answers with the same answer that a Pharisee would have given. Deuteronomy chapter six, love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in Mark's gospel, we're told that the lawyer, after hearing this answer, compliments Jesus for having had the right answer, at least in his mind. I'm sure Jesus was very relieved to have this man's approval. But Jesus doesn't stop there. You notice, after he's given them the answer they asked, he moves to giving them a second most important law, something they'd never thought about, or at least they didn't ask him. And this second law, this second part, is not found in Deuteronomy 6. Jesus says, you're also supposed to love your neighbor as you would love yourself. 
That's a great standard when you think about it. Uh, if you ask how much must I love somebody, there's no one on this planet you love more than yourself in the sense of how we serve our own needs above anyone else's. When push comes to shove, if there's only enough food to go around, enough money to go around, enough time to go around, we typically make sure that we get what we need before someone else gets what they need. And that's the selfishness of the human heart. And God turns that on its ear and says, if you would just do that same for everyone else, if you would take that same selfish standard and use it for how you treat everyone else, you'd be doing pretty well. And it's obviously the opposite of selfishness if we can actually achieve that. Jesus said that is the second greatest commandment. Now, he actually quotes here from another place in the law, from Leviticus, and this is a a law buried in Leviticus that the Pharisees apparently had not thought to consider very highly, and I think that kind of says something about the heart of Pharisees, right? How we treat other people was not so high on their list. But Jesus says, this second law is so particularly important that when you add it to the first law and put them together, you summarize the entire law with just those two commandments. In other words, every one of the 613 odd commandments, as they were counted, of the law is doing one or the other of those two things. It is either helping ensure that we give God the love that we should, or it's helping ensure we give other people the love that we should. So that if somebody could perfectly keep those two laws, they would, in effect, be keeping all 613 at the same time. Which kind of begs a question, right? Why was God's law not just those two laws then? If it's sufficiently described in those two laws, why have the rest of them then? Well, you might suppose, well, that might be so that God could help us understand how to do those other things, how to love God, how to love our neighbor. So he, he described it in more detail so that we'd have a better roadmap of what to go do. But you know, the Bible actually says the opposite of that is true. That is, Paul tells us in Romans 7 that the law was not given so that we would have a roadmap to how to be righteous. Romans 7 says that we got all of those additional laws, all of that detail, simply so that we would have a better understanding of when we are sinning. We'd have a better roadmap to understand our sin. So your sin nature, my sin nature, it prevents us from doing what's right. We are programmed to sin by the nature we received from Adam. And so it truly does not matter how many laws somebody were to give us, those laws cannot make us righteous. You know, if you want proof of that, the fact that there's a speed limit sign on our highways everywhere we go, that has not helped people necessarily avoid speeding, it just means you know when you're speeding. That's the effect of it. And so if God had only given you two laws and said do these two things and you'll be fine, then we would have violated them repeatedly without realizing we were violating them. What he did instead was he gave us 613 laws which clearly spell out where sin exists so that now when we sin, we know it more clearly. It didn't make us more righteous, it just made us more aware of our sin. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 7, 7, he says, says, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You see, coveting violates that second commandment. It puts us at odds with our neighbor. It makes my concerns and desires and and lusts more important than their interests. And so I violate the law of loving my neighbor. But if you had not told me that coveting had that effect, my own knowledge of of myself and of, of my relationship with other people wouldn't have been sufficient for me to realize that coveting was a sin. I would have still coveted, I just would have done it without any thought at all about whether it was right or wrong. So Jesus 
gives these men this answer. He says, you have a law that says love your Lord, and you have also this law that says love your neighbor. Those two things should drive your entire thinking about the law. And generally, they like the answer. This is basically what they were hoping to hear, that it was confirming what they had already concluded, which was that, that uh, Shema from Deuteronomy 6 was the greatest commandment. The, the second commandment was probably a bit of news for them, but never mind, it didn't object, they didn't object to it, and so the lawyers uh, are pleased and they walk away pleased. Now, you might think, well, that's the end of the story, except this was a test, remember? There was an intent here to trip up Jesus. And so the lawyer sees an opportunity, right at the very end, after Jesus has given this answer, to lay that trap. Now, you don't see that challenge here in Matthew, but in Mark's account, we see that the scribe found a way to turn this moment into a trap. And in Mark 12, 32, we read this. This is right after Jesus has given his answer. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated he is one and there is no one else beside him. So that's how the scribe ends the the engagement. But did you notice, in complimenting Jesus for his answer, he repeats part of the Shema, part of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. He emphasizes, you're right, there is only one God, which in a sense was an implication. He was implying that Jesus' claim to being the Son of God was a contradiction to this commandment. In effect, he was saying, oh, you're right, Jesus, there is only one God, and you're not him. I think this was the test that the man decided to lay for Jesus, the trap, and in asking Jesus to affirm the greatest commandment, the Shema, he then turns that around on Jesus and says, oh, your claim to be the son of God then must be contradicting what you just claimed to be the greatest commandment. But friends, Deuteronomy 6.4 doesn't contradict Jesus' claim to be the son of God because Jesus never claimed to be another God competing with the God of the Bible. And that's what paganism does. Paganism says there are many gods and they portray these gods as competing with one another, challenging one another for control over various aspects of creation. That's what paganism presents. But the God of the Bible is the one and only God. There is no other God competing with him. He's not in some cosmic battle with Satan. He is God, there is no other. And the Bible also declares that this creator God exists in the form of, of three persons, named the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now together they are one God. Neither, no member of the Godhead created another member of the Godhead. They all have existed from all time. So they are not three separate gods, but one. They don't challenge one another, they don't compete with one another. In fact, they work in perfect unison together, ruling over their creation. But the Bible has always said this three-person God is one God, And that's true even from the opening verses of the Bible in Genesis. You know, the very first verse of the Bible, in Genesis 1-1, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Did you know that that's written in Hebrew? And the Hebrew word for God in that first verse is Elohim, which is a plural word in Hebrew. So there's a plural God in chapter one, verse one of Genesis, and then the verb that's used, created, is conjugated in the singular which is obviously a grammatical error if you were to think about it, a plural noun and a singular verb, but that's how it was written in the original Hebrew. What's really interesting to me about that is the Hebrew scribes, men like this lawyer, 
whose job it was to handwrite the scriptures and make copies, perfect copies, without any flaw at all. When they saw that first verse of the Bible, they must have known that they're writing something that was grammatically incorrect. And yet, their devotion to their role of scribe, of being careful and making careful copies, that devotion overrode their instincts to reconcile the conflict. They left it as it was given to them. And ever since, it's remained that way in our scriptures. A plural God, singular, created. And it reflects the tension in scripture that we now understand as part of the Trinity. If you go just a few verses later in chapter one of Genesis, in Genesis 1.25, you get to that moment where God is making man and you hear this. It says, let us make man in our image. So you have in a later verse of chapter one this reflection of a plural Godhead. And even in the Shema, in Deuteronomy 6.4, which the lawyer just approved Jesus for having quoted, do you know when it says your God is one in Hebrew 6.4? That Hebrew word for one can also refer to a plurality, not to a singularity. So the Bible presents God as one and plural, as the only God, there is no other, and as three persons acting in that one God form. And Jesus, in his own teaching about himself, has reflected that tension, that uh, strange combination, in all his own teaching. He has called himself God at times in the Gospels. He also called himself the Son of God at times. At one point he says, I am the great I am, referring back to the moment when Moses met God in the desert, and that's a clear reference to the God creator of the universe. And then elsewhere he talked about doing the Father's will which reflects the fact that there is a plurality in the Godhead. What's so interesting to me about all of this is that these references have been in the Bible since the day it was written, from Genesis onward. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, had this same work in front of them. They studied the same words that you and I can read today in the Old Testament, and yet they could not comprehend the plural nature of the Godhead. And so when Jesus would make these claims to be God and also to be the Son of God, They thought, well, that's not right. That contradicts Deuteronomy 6.4. That contradicts our Shema. And that's why you have a scribe now pointedly making this argument to Jesus that God is only one and there is no one beside him, which is to say, you can't be God. And that leads Jesus to respond with a question of his own. Look at verse 41. Now, when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, well then, how does David, in the spirit, call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, well then how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. So, Now you see how this passage is related to the earlier one. Having just made his point and then having this scribe turn that around on him and suggest that that says you can't be the son of God, well, Jesus now goes to showing them from the scriptures that no, in fact, the Bible has always talked about this coming Messiah being a son of God. And he quizzes them and he says, from whom is the Messiah supposed to have descended? Now, what he's referring to is the Old Testament prophecies that foretold that the line of David would produce the Messiah. That comes most clearly at a moment in 2 Samuel when God promised to David before he died 
through the prophet Nathan that later on, after David was gone, the Lord would raise up a descendant of David to rule. He says this in 2 Samuel seven twelve: When your days are complete and you lie down with the fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now we know that after David died, Solomon, his son, took over the kingdom. But we know this reference here is not to Solomon's coming into power because as you heard in chapter seven, verse 13, God says this will be a throne that he will establish, a kingdom he will establish forever. And obviously Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever. No, this is an assurance to David that in the future, the Messiah would come out of the line of David. And when he did, he would rule over Israel and over the world for that matter in a kingdom that no one would ever challenge. Now we call this promise in the scriptures the Davidic covenant because it was a covenant, a promise God made to David and it's a promise to bring the Messiah to rule. And as such, the theology that comes out of this is that the Messiah will have to be out of the line of David because it says here plainly he will be a descendant of David. So when Jesus asked these men, from whom will the Messiah come? They say correctly, well he will be a son of David. Son here doesn't necessarily mean a first generation descendant, it's just a Jewish way of saying one of his descendants. Could be a grandson, a great grandson, doesn't matter, it's a son of David. Jesus says to them, you're correct. But then Jesus lays his trap for these men. He says, well then, how is it possible that David would refer to this future descendant as Lord? And what Jesus is doing is quoting from that great messianic psalm, Psalm 110, in which David writes this. It starts this way, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then it goes on. Now look, everybody knew this psalm. I mean, I think most Christians have heard this psalm. It's one of the most famous psalms in the Bible. It was written by David, and it's about the Messiah. The subject of this psalm is the Messiah, the coming descendant of David. And in verse one, David calls this future son his Lord. Now that makes no sense in a Jewish way of thinking because David wrote that Yahweh, that's the ver- that in verse one when it says, the Lord says to my Lord, that first mention of the Lord is the word Yahweh, the name of God, and then the second mention of the word Lord is Adonai, which is a general word for Lord, often used for the Messiah. So you have my Lord, that is uh, Yahweh said to my Lord, Adonai, Jesus, sit at my right hand. God directs that the Messiah will have the position of sitting at his right hand. Now there is no higher position in creation. There is God and then whoever sits at his right hand is the highest authority and in Jewish society, a father was always greater than a son. A son never had more prominence or significance than his father. So in human terms, there's a conundrum here. From a Jewish point of view, a descendant of David couldn't be David's Lord or David's superior. It would have to be the other way around. David would have to have been the superior of his son. And that's why in verse 45, Jesus asked these men to resolve that conundrum. He says, how can this future Messiah be a Lord over his father, that is over David? And none of the men were able to answer it because it doesn't have a human answer. The answer in human terms was Jesus, uh, that uh, David's descendant was a natural born son and so that would mean he'd be less significant than David. But this isn't just a matter of human 
issues. There's also the divine incarnate issue. You have Jesus who came as a son of David but also as God incarnate. So in human terms, the Messiah was David's descendant but in divine terms, the Messiah is David's creator. He is David's Lord. Now, in Psalm 110, David obviously knew this truth. In fact, when Jesus speaks about it in verse 43, he says, David wrote this in the Spirit. In other words, David was directed by the Spirit of God to write these words, which means God revealed this truth to David. And self-evidently, the Spirit had not revealed these things to the Pharisees. David was referring to the fact that his Lord would not just be an ordinary human being. The Messiah would be something different. He would be man and God. As such, he could be a descendant of David and be David's Lord. But did you notice that in this passage, not only is the second person of the Godhead being affirmed, the Father speaking to his Son, the Lord speaking to our Lord, but did you notice the third person of the Trinity is also represented in Jesus' comment when he refers to the fact that David wrote these things in the Spirit? So in two simple verses, Jesus affirms there is a Father, there is a Son, and there is a Spirit, all three working together. Now that concept lay outside the grasp of these men because they couldn't understand scripture, they didn't understand Jesus as Messiah, and so Jesus silences them. And you and I may disagree at times about scripture, like these men disagreed with each other, and one day when we're all standing before the Lord and we're all silent because we'll know the truth, well then we'll all be of one mind. But you notice in verse 46, after Jesus settles this issue, After he answers their question and presents them with this question they couldn't answer, no one dared ask Jesus another question. This is the last moment that Jesus gets tested on this Tuesday, the last time that he gets any question at all. There's a chapter or two coming still on this day of Tuesday. Next chapter in chapter 23, it's Jesus doing all the talking as he lectures these men about their unbelief. And in chapter 24 and 25, it's Jesus talking only to the disciples about matters concerning the future, which we'll study, of course, when we get there. And in a day not too far from now, the Lord's going to assemble everyone. First, those who know him and will enjoy a life together with him in the kingdom. But after that, there'll come a time in which he assembles all of those who opposed the truth of the gospel and opposed him. And in that future moment, the judgment moment that we call the great white throne judgment, In that moment, he's going to call all of those who have opposed him to an accounting moment. And at that time, Jesus will do all the talking. And those under scrutiny will have nothing to say in their defense. It'll be very similar to the moment that just took place between Jesus and these religious leaders. A moment in which they thought they had all the answers and yet they knew nothing. And when Jesus begins to reveal the truth, they'll be silent in his presence. And following that moment, there'll be a great judgment from which no one escapes from which there is no recovery. Now I know there'll be a countless number of people who will enter into that moment, and regrettably they'll be crushed by the weight of Jesus and his righteous judgment. But remember earlier I said that just because a lot of people get the Bible wrong, a lot of people don't understand the truth, that doesn't mean we have to be one of them. And likewise, just because a lot of people reject Jesus as Messiah, or have told you that it's a ridiculous presumption or a fairy tale or whatever you might have heard, It doesn't mean we have to follow their mistake. Surely after what you've seen in the scriptures this morning, you can see the truth. You can see the Bible testifying that he is the Messiah, the son of David and also David's Lord. 
Uh, Surely you can agree that loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is your highest duty and obligation. So if David knew that God was God, that his Messiah was one he should worship, if he was led by the Spirit to write that and give that to us in the Bible, surely you can trust that word. Surely you can agree that we should be observing the same love for Jesus that we would for the Father, for he is part of the Godhead. Just because the Pharisees didn't see this truth doesn't mean we have to be ignorant. Just because Sadducees went to their grave unbelieving doesn't mean we have to. You can trust these scriptures. You can put your faith in the word of God. It validates itself. It proves itself. Jesus is God. He's the one who came to this world in the form of man to live a perfect life you couldn't live. He is the one who met the standard for heaven in that life of perfection. And he's willing to give you credit for that standard. Give you his perfect life in exchange for the sinful one that we all live. And then he died on the cross to pay for the price of your sins that needed to be paid. He did all that was required to save you. All that you have to do is believe that truth. I don't know who joins us on these live streams. I can't see all of you like I could if you were in this room. So I suppose that perhaps somebody has been brought into this moment not knowing the truth of these things so that they could learn it. Like I said earlier this morning, God has put this truth in front of you. It has crossed your path this morning. Now will you embrace it? Will you confess Christ as your Lord and Savior? For if you do, then we'll be together in the kingdom together. And I would enjoy the chance to meet you there, if not sooner. Let's pray together as we end this service, asking the Lord to move the hearts of those who've heard into a belief of the gospel. Heavenly Father, Father, I thank you first for the truth, the truth of your word revealed to us by your spirit. I thank you that you have uh, condescended to reveal yourself to us. I thank you, Father, that we could share this word with others this morning by the power of technology and by the power of your spirit. I ask, Father, that for the heart that might be turned by these things to thinking about you and about their relationship with you, I pray, Father, for that heart, whoever it is, wherever they are, would be turned to a moment of confession. They would just confess the truth that they now understand that Jesus is their savior, that he died in their place, that his payment on that cross so long ago reconciles them to a God who is extending forgiveness for their sins. I pray that they would accept that truth in their heart and they would confess it out loud as you give opportunity. Welcome welcome them, Father, into the body of Christ. And if it be your will, Father, give us an opportunity to minister to them personally when we come together again. We thank you for the privilege of preaching the truth. And we ask, Father, that that truth would be used to glorify your name among all who hear it. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.